test. Don't guess. We all know that. We want you to test better. Val Dynamo is a dynamometer specifically designed for MSK Healthcare. It isn't a repurposed crane gauge or an inaccurate grip measure. Push, pull grip and more. Plus, if that wasn't enough, its app for recording and storing the data is just brilliant. Valdhealth.com forward slash dynamo for the only measurement device you'll ever need in clinic. Welcome back to Chewing It Over with myself, Justin, and we have got a very special guest today, Richie Barber. Um, Richie, what is the classification process and how does a physiotherapy get involved in one? Yeah, so the classification process in parasport is all about trying to make the sport fair, in essence. Okay. Because if you imagine there are lots and lots of athletes in the Olympic Games if you think about the Paralympic Games, where you've got multiple different impairments covering multiple different disabilities, the numbers increase exponentially. Okay. So as a result, the level of, of, um, of variability in, in the different impairments and disabilities make it very difficult to make the races fair and even. So the classification system is basically designed to look at an athlete's impairments and how they interact with the athlete in the water to give the athlete a particular class to make sure that the seven, eight, nine, ten athletes that are racing together all have a fair shot at winning the race. And therefore, the only thing that really decides whether the race is run is the training history, mm. the actual athletic ability of the athlete and not the impairment. 100%. Right. So very interesting topic to start with. Um, I'm sure this classification system wasn't there at the very beginning of Paralympic game. Maybe could, could you give us a bit of a history yeah. on how sure. it was formed? Yeah. Uh, it, it's very much based around how the models of disability have evolved. Right. So if you think about years and years and years ago, everybody was very much focused on the medical model of disability. Okay. And in saying that, what I mean is people would look at somebody with a disability and go, oh, it's their brain and it's their body that are causing the disability. So what that means then is that in the early classification systems, the sport was actually very limited to only those that were in wheelchairs. Yeah. So it was only uh, quite a while after that that then the classification system started to evolve and it started to reflect how uh, disability was changing and um, its drive for inclusivity to encourage yeah. everybody in. So then we started to see athletes that were amb ambulant, athletes with amputations, athletes yeah. with neurological conditions. Yeah. And in doing so, the classification system changed to one that was very much based around function. So okay. how somebody's impairment affected their function. And that's where the ICF, the International Classification of uh, Disability, is really important because it gives you an indication of how somebody's impairment 
impacts their activity and function. So the new classification systems or the newer classification systems that we see today are more about how somebody's impairment affects function, whereas the older ones look at just the impairment and they would yeah. just put athletes in the same groups with the same conditions, whereas nowadays you've got different athletes with different conditions racing together because they've got similar levels of ability. Yeah, so like... I think before the show, I read the paper that you sent that um, to me. And like you said, it started off with just soldiers with spinal cord in yeah. injuries. And so it's like what you say, it's more mechanical, sh shall we say, yeah. rather than based on function, which yeah. makes sense, really. So when did it first or when was it first implemented? So it was... Uh, the framework. Yeah, so in terms of the... Uh, more functional classification systems they were they were more kind of introduced in the 90s right um, okay previous to that we had a, a more of a more of a it, the same disabilities in the same races yeah uh, but what we're actually seeing now is that yeah. even this functional classification system has its pitfalls right a very subjective process so okay. let's let's give a very simple example. Go on. If you have a condition that affects your muscle power, it's likely a part of the process to give you a sport class would be to assess your muscle power. Okay. And the, the way they do that is by the manual muscle test. Okay. Now, we know that the Oxford scale is, yes, it's a scale with numbers, but it's still very subjective. Mm. So what we're seeing is that through real good quality evidence, we're starting to see that people are looking into ways to make the tests that govern what class an athlete gets more objective, more scientific. So and what, how do we do that? Yeah. So you've got very smart minds in different universities getting together to look yeah. at things like how do we effectively use a handheld dynamometer, for example. Okay. You know, so we're not mess making massive changes, but we're trying to make it fairer. We're trying to make it more sensitive. We're trying to make sure that we are, or, or the classification system itself is as, is as sensitive as possible to ensure mm. that everybody has a fair shot. That's a really good point because it's all about inclusivity and equality. But take me a few steps back. Let's say I'm an athlete with a certain disability. Talk me through the process. Like, how do I get assessed? How yeah. do I get classified? Yeah, sure. So, obviously, the going back to my time as an athlete yeah. Yeah. and my experience, I very much was told that your mum's filled a form out to say that you've got a disability. The consultant that's looking after you has signed that form saying, yes, he has cerebral palsy. This okay. is a this is a um, this is a official letter stating that that it's true this person has a disability. And that's mm. called a uh, MDF. So that's called a medical disclosure form. Okay. So that's the first step. And that's yeah. often consultant-led. 
And the aim of that form is to put as much subjective and objective information together so that they get through the door to start the classification process. The next yeah. step is that you would go through a two-step process. The first step is you would be in a room with a physio, with a physio bed, and yeah. the physio would take you through very rudimentary tests like the manual muscle test, yeah. like range of movement range. tests, yeah. like coordination tests. And then you'd come out of the back of that with a certain score. Okay. And then the next step is you would go into your sporting environment. So if that's swimming, you'd go into a swimming pool. If that was running, you'd go onto the track. If it was cycling, you'd go onto the cycling track. Mm. And you'd complete a series of sports-specific tests that look at a combination of technique, aerobic fitness, speed and power. And then again, you would get given a score and the two scores are then added up and the, the sum of the scores gives you your sport class. So in essence, it's, it's quite uh, a, a uh, procedural approach. And the mm. final step is that during competition, the classifying team watch you. Okay. And this is really important because they need to see you when it really matters. And that's in a race environment. Because ultimately, having to race takes away some of the uncertainties around how much have you actually shown me that is you in those tests. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me, you know, in essence, what I'm trying to say is that there's nothing stopping athletes not giving 100% of their selves in those two tests on the bench test or on the physio bed or in that sport specific environment. So the observation in competition, A, gives the opportunity for the classifiers to really see yeah. the true ability of the athlete. But yeah. also we have to remember that disabilities are variable. Yeah. You know? And one of the biggest things that affects my cerebral palsy is nerves. One yep. of the biggest things that affects my cerebral palsy is fatigue. Yeah. So we need to see it in its truest form. So we need to see it when the athlete is racing. Mm. That's These are all new to me. So thank you for shedding a light. Can you talk me through the classes? So at, at the end bit, of course, you've got your subjective scores, you've got your objective scores and technique. And what are the classes available and how does that matter in sort of classifying athletes into a specific group? Yeah, so a great question. And it's a great question because in my session on Therapy Live tomorrow afternoon, I make a clear statement that if we, if we were to discuss all the classifications, we'd be here all night. Right. Okay, so cool. Actually, so there is a lot. <laughs> you know, so, so when we take all the sports together the number of classifications are, um, are immense. And what makes it more difficult is that the physiotherapy assessment on the bed and the sport-specific assessment in the sporting environment are very much sport-led. So they look different if you're a swimmer, they look different if you're a runner, they look different if you're a cyclist. 
And as okay. a result, the classifications, the subgroups, are also different. Mm. I actually think swimming, because I'm a swimmer, is probably yeah. the most is is probably the easiest to understand. Although there are sports that have as little as three classifications, like like okay. some of the uh, some of the boat uh, specific sports, uh, yeah. like uh, rowing and yeah. uh, uh, kayaking. Yeah. Well, in swimming, I'll just give you an idea of swimming because I'm going to use yeah. swimming as an example. Yeah, thanks. Swimming is separated into, in essence, three subgroups. The first subgroup is the biggest, and that's the physical disabilities. Yeah. So the physical disabilities can be given either a one or a ten. So one is your athlete that has the most severe impairments, whereas 10 is the athlete that has the least impairment. I'll try and give you an example. Yeah. So an athlete that is a 10 may be a below-knee amputee. Okay. Yeah. They may be a cerebral palsy athlete where one limb is affected. Okay. Okay, That's a... a Simplistic thing. A simplistic yeah. example. Yeah. S1, this is where it gets super complicated. And S1 could be a significant, severe quadriplegic athlete, either cerebral palsy or spinal cord. Yeah. yeah. They could be a significant arthrogryposis, so where the, where the joints, in essence, fuse. Okay. So that is that is the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Of the scale. Yeah. Um, so that is that is an example of of a swimming classification. Now, what we tend to see, and and this is a sweeping statement. I'm just trying to make it as as simple as I can. Is that yes. in the middle ground? So in the sixes, the sevens, you'll often find your uh, m- kind of mild to moderate cerebral palsy so your typical hemiplegia uh, in the sixes you'll often find or in the sixes and sevens you'll often find your short stature athletes okay uh, when i say short stature uh, dwarfism okay you'll often find those in that middle ground towards the upper end you will see uh, again amputees yeah. So if you get an amputation above the knee, you're likely to be a nine. If you mm-hmm. get an amputation of both legs mm. above the knee, you're likely to be an eight. Yeah. But again, this is where the complexity of the classification system kind of goes another level a little bit because you've got classifications given to athletes with a neurological condition that are very complex, but you've also got classifications classifications given to amputees that are really easy it's just yeah. measuring a limb yeah if it's, if it's this short then you're that class if it's that yeah. long then you're that class so it's very much uh the the spectrum of classifications challenges the classifier on many different levels because yeah. you just you just don't know how complex the athlete is going to be which Going back to your first point, saying that the updated or the newer forms of classification is based on function. Yes. 
because you can have a lot of different complex issues or disability, but ultimately the function is where it's equal for most yeah. of the um, and I'll, athletes, exactly. shall we say. And I'll give you, that's a great way to kind of give you this example here now. Yeah. So I always remember growing up, my auntie used to say to me, you, you're born in the water, you. And it's only really since I started working with British Power Swimming that you start to appreciate what that actually means. So you could have an athlete in a wheelchair with a significant neurological condition really struggle to function, really struggle to fit into society. But the minute you put them in the water, the environment has changed. Yeah. So we're looking very much at the social model of disability and how the environment has allowed them to explore their movement and explore yeah. their abilities in a way that they've never going to experience on land. So you see a different person. So yeah. anybody that's new to, to classification, the worst thing you can do is try and classify an athlete before you see them in the water because the athlete on the – the athlete on the on the side of the pool could be completely different to the athlete that's in the water, you know. Which is why the ob observers come into place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I got exactly. you now. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Got you. So, now. so, and and I think that's the, the the important point there is that that's why the classification system moved to a more functional approach. Yeah, because yeah. impairment in many ways may not drive function. You know? Great point. Yeah, great point. Um, going to the main sort of topic or the content that you were going to deliver, where does physiotherapy stand in the classification? I know this might be something that you are talking a little yeah, bit more well, in a content, no, but give us a bit of a te teaser. So we've talked about more like assessment side of things. Yeah. yeah. Is there any other role that physios will yeah. play? So, so in essence, uh, the physio can be part of the classification team. Okay. okay. So, so that is very much the simplest role that the physio can play. Okay. Um, the, another emerging role, and I encourage anybody that has the opportunity to do this, to get involved, uh, is the research around para-classification or okay. para-sport classification. Uh, and... and some of the universities in the Northwest are doing some really good work on this. Uh, and as is uh, Loughborough University, uh, yeah. MMU are doing some great work. So anybody that gets the opportunity to observe this and, and get involved, then I, I would I would absolutely encourage it. The bit that I'm going to try and focus on more in my talk is the bit that people don't see. So what I mean by that, is that when I was a swimmer, the classification process was very much a tick box exercise. But when I swam prior to Sydney 2000, the BPA, the British Paralympic Association, received £10 million of funding. Right. right. Now, or, or pre-Rio, that, that money soared to £75 million. Wow. Okay. So with that comes expectation. With that yeah. comes sponsorship. With that comes pressure. Yeah. 
And you could go to bed one night, a Paralympic gold medalist. You could, you could wake up the next morning in a completely different class, looking at an uncertain future, not knowing what the hell to do. That's how powerful the classification process can be. Yeah. Now, I'm being dramatic. It doesn't happen yeah. overnight. But yeah, but relatively we get speaking, fight. Yeah. Relatively speaking, for an athlete, it feels like that. So the talk that I'm going to give is not seeing classification as a tick box, but yeah. seeing it as a journey. And it's a journey because we've got to make sure that we help the athlete navigate the process. We help yeah. parents navigate the process because what you've all got, always got to remember as well is the demographics of Paralympic sport are significantly different to Olympic. Yeah. The age ranges are huge. We get yeah. very young athletes. We get athletes of adult age but still very well supported or very closely supported by parents. So we're not just supporting the athlete through it, we're supporting the parents through it. Yeah. So in essence, the, the talk is going to kind of – show a side of the classification process that physios can have a massive part to play in. And that is how do we best support the athlete to ensure that they can navigate it mm. with as little uh, angst, as little anxiety or stress as possible. And the only way to do that is really to see the physio working as part of a an interdisciplinary team. Mm. And that's the, that's the beauty of the talk. I yeah. Think. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting one to tune into because personally, I've not, as I told you before the recording, I've not as involved in yeah. Paralympic sport, which definitely is definitely something physios need to be aware of or the general public to a certain extent. Just wanted to unpick a few points. Um, you've mentioned it's a journey. So talk, Talk us through a little bit about your journey, let's say, as an athlete and now as a physio. So just these two distinctions. Yeah, sure. So how much has it changed and what are your personal thoughts? Yeah, so, so my journey as an athlete was pretty much ended just before the Paralympic movement received a massive big injection. Like, and what I mean by injection, I don't mean cash, but obviously cash is one element. Yeah. But London 2012 was a powerful, yeah, powerful kind of time for para sport. Yeah. Uh, and even then, you know, Beijing, it was it was big then as well. Yeah. Uh, and I left, or I I I always say I'm semi-retired. I'm not semi-retired. I'm retired. I'm not coming back. <laughs> uh, but but I kind of retired. Uh, in 2004 just before Athens because I didn't qualify you know and that's a really that is a, a a really kind of powerful point in my life because I was studying to be a physiotherapist at the time mm. and every time I was swimming I was thinking about studying and every time I was studying I was thinking about swimming so nothing won and so I just needed to, to kind of make that break and decide, right, now's the time. My swimming career is done. Let's focus on being a physio. Um, yeah, but still stay involved in the sport. Yeah. So 
the one of the big kind of beliefs that I've got is having a plan, you know. Okay. Um, yes, a plan can be flexible, but let's start with having one. So I had a plan. Yeah. I wanted to swim from a country. I wanted to be a physio. I wanted to be a physio from a country in the sport that I love. I wanted to uh, be a university lecturer whilst staying in touch with sport. So in many ways, yeah. I've ticked all my boxes. And when, when I speak to young physios and they're like, oh, I don't want to do it. I said, well, just make a plan. Like, yeah. have it loose. You know, just you don't have to stick to it. Because, yeah. I, I, you know, people often say to me, when you reflect back on your career, what are some of your kind of question marks? And I think I was asked to write a letter uh, to myself from oh, yeah. my 80-year-old self. And one of the points that I raised was, do you think you lived your life too rigidly in the sense that sticking to the plan has that kind of narrowed your experiences a little bit um and and i i don't know like you know I, i'm still kind of mulling over that question now i keep thinking if well if i wasn't a physio what would it be to be honest i don't know physio has been a massive part of my life since yeah. the day i was born you know um so i just don't feel like i could have answered that question appropriately yeah, yeah, yeah. you know yeah. uh, but you know it was it was one of those that transition from being an athlete to to a to a to a student to a physio was was one that had I not had lots of people around me I, I wouldn't have done it so that's yeah. another kind of massive kind of driver of mine or, or or real big reflection is that you are what other people have helped you become oh yeah 100 you know? so so you know i've got some massive influences in my uh physio career yeah uh that have really helped me out i remember starting british with british para swimming yeah and i referenced it in in the article that it's yeah. like kind of uh jumping out the uh frying pan into the fire you know, so because when I started, we had some real big injuries and without the help of uh, the English Institute Sport and uh, yeah. th th it would have been really tricky to navigate. So, yeah. so off the back of that, I have lots of gratitude for lots of different people that have helped me get where I am, you know. Yeah. Um, one last question for me from a physio point of view, like what does a rehab program for well i know it's of differs from sort of pay um athletes slash patients but what does it look like in like uh in your role as um a physio in paralympic sport do you know what i think it very much starts the same you yeah. know so so in essence what you need to make sure you do is you ensure that You've picked the injury up. Yeah. You've cleared any red flags. Yeah. Okay. And then it's about a needs analysis that takes into account the physical qualities that we need to improve. Yeah. All right. But also have a have a respect 
or a level of respect for how the impairments interact. Mm-hmm. So for me, a rehab program is one that doesn't afraid or isn't afraid to see the impairments as an opportunity yeah. to even attempt to improve those. You know, the old school thought around Paralympics was work on strengths because you can't improve the weaknesses. But that, that's not necessarily true. You know, there are elements that you can have an impact on. Yeah. So I think from my point of view, it's about kind of not being afraid to have a have a go at those yeah. in that injured time. Um, but also, I think a rehab program with a, with a Paralympic athlete requires you to have an open mind. Mm. And what I mean by that is it's a lot more trial and error. Because when you look at uh, an able-bodied athlete's shoulder, you'd expect it to behave in, in a way to a given stimulus or to a given stress. But when you impart that expectation on a Paralympic shoulder, it doesn't respond or react in the same way. So you've mm. got to have an open mind around uh, understanding what you see and being patient with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and and then finally, it's about exploration. Like one of the biggest ways that I've learned is just playing, mm. you know, playing with the strength and conditioning coach around what exercises, how can we manipulate and adapt this exercise? How can we manipulate and adapt this exercise? So mm. learning through play, you know, and and learning through exploring with the athlete in time you know so people think you've got to treat an athlete and you've got to be spot on with the exercise and you've got to be able to show it nice and you've got to be able to demonstrate it and you've got to do this mm. number of sets and this number of reps and this way but sometimes with a Paralympic athlete it's I'm not sure this is going to work but let's try it together yeah let's learn from each other you know um in actual fact I'm just you know um I'm 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 writing a session for the students at university at the minute yeah. that, that talks about exercise prescription for pain relative to your physical qualities. So so if somebody's not in as much pain, then maybe you can afford a bit more specificity. Maybe you can afford a bit more focus on rep sets, load, and what have you. But if you're dealing with somebody that's got a little bit more focus around pain then maybe they're, well, you know, there's strong suggestion that they're not as important, you know. Mm. And in many ways, in those early phases of getting a Paralympic athlete, right, that model sometimes works. Yeah. And I would argue that that is not only confined to Paralympic athletes. Normal sort of like a human being, it's also applicable as well. Like these are the principles that I've listened, that I feel like, oh, actually, I can apply this to my NHS outpatient patients yeah. or yeah. just a simple athlete. So yeah. that's really, really informing. Richie, yeah. how can people... Oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I think yeah. people are often a little bit nervous about working with Paralymp- Paralympic athletes because yeah. they just don't know what to expect. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think for me... Uh, it's one of those situations where sometimes you just got to dive in and, and yeah. just experience Trial. it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's a good experience 
for students or um, practitioners that are new to this area of field. Um, from the paper that you've sent me, what I've had to read through, it also seems like the setting, the population is getting bigger and bigger. So I do see this as a good, a good opportunity for the role of physio to be bigger and bigger as well. Yeah, and it's a great point to finish on because, you know, when, I, when, I, when I've done a similar talks and presentations like this to, to other people, mm. I've said, don't sit back in your chair thinking that this is not something that you will experience because yeah. it will be. You know, if you want to go and work in Olympic sport, the programme that you go into might be a uh, a sport that has a mixed programme. Yep. Able-bodied and uh, able-bodied and disabled athletes training together. Mm. And therefore, when they train together, they, they sometimes share staff, physio, doctor, whatever. So in actual mm. fact, classification if you're going to get involved in sport, is likely to be landing on your desk quicker than you think. Yeah. You know? So being prepared and being be aware yeah. is more important. Um, Richie, where can people find out a little bit more about you? Yeah, so I am fairly active on Twitter. My yep. handle is Richie Swim, uh, R-I-T-C-H-I-E-S-W-I-M. I am also on LinkedIn, but to be yeah. honest, you just better search in my name in LinkedIn because the, the handle for LinkedIn is too long. I can never remember it. <laughs> Fair um, enough. One thing I have remembered to do is I, I put all my contact details at the bottom of each slide. So you'll be able to every slide that turns over, it will be on there. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's where they can find me. Uh, yeah. Equally, you know, search the University of Salford staff directory. I will be there. Uh, anybody yeah. that is keen to know more or keen yeah. to kind of understand the role of physio within classification in a, in a, in different settings, feel free to give me a shout. Yeah. Uh, you know, I am, I am super keen to, to share as much knowledge that I have of Paralympic sports as possible, really. Nice one. And I definitely say for myself that we are very excited and to a certain degree, very honoured to have you to share your side of your story and also your experience to the Physio Matters platform. And I'm pretty sure, well, I'm not, I'm very certain that your talk is going to be amazing um, at Therapy Life. By this time when the podcast is released, I'm pretty sure the talk or the event will be over. So definitely get your re recordings with the um, links that are attached with this podcast or video. Um, we'll also include some of the information that you've sent to us prior. So if that's okay with you, Richie. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Um, so there is a paper and also a link to um, on the CS CSP website. And I highly encourage people that are interested uh, into having a read because prior to reading and prior to this podcast, I had almost zero knowledge. Uh, and after reading a little bit more and after having a really fruitful conversation with you, Richie, I feel like there's a next level of understanding to what athletes have to go, go through and a physio now. So thank you very much for that. Here at Physio Matters, we think physio matters. 
Join as a premium member now and access over 500 videos. Get free tickets to shows and upgrades included. Access at home, work or on a unicycle to take your knowledge to the moon. Physio-matters.com, more content than you can fit into a gym.